The Womanizer is not just any intimate toy for vulva owners, it is THE toy for vulva owners. What makes the Womanizer so special? Their vibrator is equipped with a patented pleasure air technology. I love my Womanizer duo. So it has the clitoral pleasure air technology, but it also has uh, an arm for internal G-spot vibration. And it's nice because you can control both. And there are several different um, intensity levels and different patterns. And oh, it's just fantastic. Um, it typically has me orgasming in just a couple of minutes and usually multiple times over. I tell everybody about this product. Every vulva owner I know, I have said, you need a womanizer duo. And now I am telling all of you as well. Whether you're looking for something for yourself or that special person in your life, you can't go wrong with the duo. If you're interested in only clitoral stimulation, then I also highly recommend any number of their womanizer products. They're handheld, easy to use, and they provide lovely pleasure. Uh, I have the Womanizer Starlet 3, and it is also uh, one of my go-tos. It's, you're going to have a good time. I can promise you that much. Uh, check out the link in this week's episode description to find the Womanizer product that's right for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Empowered Authenticity, the podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Shopa. Oh my goodness, this episode, I I recorded it um, about a month ago, and I have been really, really having to sit on my hands to not release this one early, um, because it is such a great, great conversation. Uh, you know, I've had so many, so many wonderful conversations that I... I <laughs> don't want to label this one as my favorite, but I will say this is um, a topic that I am extremely, extremely passionate about. So as far as topics go, I would certainly say that this was my favorite interview for a topic. Um, All my interviews have been so fantastic that I think it would be rude of me to say that this, this interview itself is my favorite, but goddamn, it's fantastic. It's so good. It's so good. Oh, if, if you know me at all, you know that um, I am a huge proponent of health at every size, body diversity, and uh, celebrating our differences. And uh, that's what we talked about today. My guest today is a doctor and a public health nutritionist. Um, she now primarily focuses on uh, teaching others about health at every size and helping others to recognize that weight is not synonymous with health. And uh, like I said, this is something that I am so passionate about and I feel absolutely honored that she agreed to come on the podcast. I do want to offer uh, a little bit of a trigger warning. Uh, There are mentions of eating disorders. Um, Nothing in graphic detail, but if that's something that uh, you are really sensitive towards, um, you know, please take care of your own own mental health. the biggest takeaway from this episode for me was was to challenge doctors and uh, because of this conversation, uh, something that I'm going to start practicing is to decline being weighed because it's, for most of us, it's not medically necessary. And hearing that was, oh, it was mind blowing. And uh, I'm so grateful that we, that we had that discussion. And uh, I am going to the doctor soon because, um, as I mentioned before, got the good old seasonal affective disorder, so I'll be going to the doctor soon. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to be weighed. And um, I'm actually going to a new doctor because I had to change insurances. Um, But yeah, I'll report back on how that goes. I anticipate that they're just going to shrug it off and say whatever, but... You know, I after this conversation, I feel like I am better prepared to really advocate for myself. Um, so I hope that you will feel the same way about this. I also wanted to point out that you can find all of the information for our guests' uh, 
projects and how you can find and support them in the episode description, wherever you're listening. So you can find uh, her podcast information as well as her Instagram and Facebook accounts. Um, Something that was mentioned in the interview um, that I went ahead and provided the, the link to is Reagan Chastain, who is a writer and an advocate for health at every size, um, overcoming weight stigma and creating weight inclusive healthcare and fitness. And she has um, cards available on her website that you can take with you into the doctor's office. If you are somebody in a bigger body, if you are concerned about being discriminated against because of your weight or your size, um, or if you would just like to practice um, health at every size and you find going into the doctor and being weighed intimidating and you don't want to have discussions around your weight. Um, So I've included that link in the episode description, so feel free to check that out. Um, I don't want to delay anymore. I can't wait for you to listen to this conversation. Um, My guest today is Dr. Maggie Landis. All right, great. Well, welcome, Maggie. I'm so excited to have you today. Well, thank you for having me, Kelly. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Oh, I, I have been looking forward to this for a while, and so I'm super, super glad that you agreed to come on. Oh, gosh. Well, I hope I live up to your expectations. <laughs> I have no doubt that you will. <laughs> um, so can you please give us an idea about the kinds of work that you're doing? Right. So I'm by profession, I'm a physician and a public health nutritionist, but I now have pivoted. I hate the word pivot, but pivoted my career and my uh, professional endeavors into this anti-diet wellness space. And I'm a speaker, an educator, a women's health coach, and essentially am trying to magnify the health at every size movement and really help everybody, both, you know, average people and also healthcare professionals um, understand that a lot of the belief system we have regarding our body and health and nutrition and all that sort of stuff is, um, is culturally based and not scientific based and trying to sort of uh, reframe that, perspective for people so that they can be healthier and quit dieting and get out of their own way, really. at the That's really the, the punchline. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's such a noble mission and one that we all need to be working towards, but it can be hard to kind of break that cycle. Um, so I'm curious, how did you kind of make that transition? How did you realize that there was something else going on that we were depending too much on weight? Um, right. Size. Well, sure. And it's the thing is that we are all indoctrinated into this culture, whether you are dieting at this moment or not, the culture surrounds us. So nobody's kind of exempt from this. And I will say that I practiced for many years in my personal and professional life, basically the, the elements of diet culture, um, because that's what's taught, frankly, in medical school. And that's what's taught to everybody as they're growing up in the, I mean, heck, I'm like in my mid forties. So I was in the eighties and the nineties, the whole, you know, slim fast, drink as much diet Coke as you can swallow, like it, no fat anywhere. It's, I mean, it was just part of what I thought was like a normative experience of being an adult woman, honestly. But here's what happened. That's interesting. So I, uh, was diagnosed with cancer almost five years ago. And in that time period, I had to take about six months off of work during my recovery. And I'm recovered by the way, that's not the point of the story, but the point of the story is in that period of time, I did a lot of, um, sort of independent study on nutrition. And I mean, study, study, like journal articles, like, you know, not Instagram study. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I realized that all these things that I had been doing myself and telling patients to do for at that point, uh, you know, almost 15 years, um, didn't have evidence to support it because you don't have time when you're in medical training to second guess everything and be cynical and do, I mean, you just can't Uh, like, it's just not part of the picture. So when somebody tells you this and they're a professor you know, standing in the front of the lecture hall when you're a second year medical student, you just sort of say, okay, and you keep going. Um, 
But then I started really reading and I thought, okay, I'm going back to graduate school to get a degree in nutrition because maybe, just maybe they're teaching something different now. Like I went to medical school, you know, years ago. I kind of blame myself the whole, oh, I'm the one. It's not you. It's me. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and I go to, I, so I started uh, my master's in nutrition in 2018 and lo and behold, guess what? Same stuff mm-hmm. being taught from the same exact, I mean, exact same stuff from when I was in school in the nineties. So now I'm like, oh no, this is not, this is not right. Like <laughs> this is just not right. And so I started trying to find, I, I certainly, I wasn't the first one to have this revelation, which I am not, but I started finding these kind of pioneers in this movement and the people that, you know, have written the books and done this, done the sort of heavy lifting to get this movement off the ground. I really latched onto that and said, I, this is where I feel totally compelled to participate because this changes the game. I mean, this changes the whole game of health and healthcare delivery and the whole thing. And we are all eating food several times a day. And so it's a big deal to every single person. Um, and that's how I kind of got here. That's a long explanation, but that's how I ended up getting here. And there's a whole world, like really, truly, there's a whole world of people and professionals and scientists that um, are, it's, you know, it's, it's not the mainstream narrative. I hope someday it will be, mm-hmm. you know, if we keep doing this work, but um, it, it's not some crazy outlandish idea. It's very much supported by the evidence and uh, if you stop long enough to understand the science, it actually is pretty simplistic. So, yeah, yeah, I appreciate that that long response because uh, <laughs> yeah, it does it does take um, something within you to kind of shift and say like, well, wait a minute, why am I doing all these things? Why do I buy into this? Yeah, um, and you know what? I'll be honest. If I wouldn't have gotten sick and had to take time off work and had the, I guess, the luxury of time to mm-hmm. do that sort of work. I'd probably still be prancing around in my white coat today, giving out the food pyramid like I had done for 15 years. I mean, really, truly, like you have to have sometimes just something just smack you in the side of the head and be like, this is this can be done differently. Yeah, absolutely. And similarly, so I my background is in uh, nutrition. I have uh, my bachelor's degree in dietetics. And so I can attest that I graduated in 2016. And yeah, I was taught all the same shit about calories in and calories out and macronutrients and weight. And it was just, it was. So you'll appreciate this as a science minded person. So what we understand that science evolves continuously. I mean, we would, there is nobody who would be using surgical equipment from 50 years ago or doing the care, you know, in the same way that we've done for other medical problems for decades. So it changes. We get better science, we get better technology, we get better information, you know. But for some reason, nutrition science is like exempt from that. Like I don't even know why, but we somebody, you know, publishes a paper in 1940 and we think that that is biblical truth that is immutable and we continue to propagate this narrative by teaching people that are coming into the profession now in the 21st century, the same crap from 50 years ago, like this stuff wouldn't, it it wouldn't pass for any other discipline of science. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because, you know, we always say like nutrition is, is a fairly young science. Um, And so, you know, we get things from, we get like the recommendations from the USDA that, that changes and that's all due to lobbyists. And so there's a lot going on behind the scenes that makes it hard to trust the information. But what I find fascinating is when we look at things like BMI and BMI was taught to to me, it's taught to physicians, it's taught to everybody. And that's kind of considered like the standard. But then when you go back and you look at it, it's like, what is this even based in? It, it just makes no sense. Yeah, nobody questions it. See, that's the thing is that nobody questions it and it's it's weird because science is the study of interrogation really and figuring out why stuff works and uh yeah I don't that is beyond me honestly it is beyond me why that's why I just like to learn about the human body and how it functions because that has fundamentally not changed in thousands or tens of thousands of years so Mm -hmm. 
like we don't have to worry about the USDA and the lobbyists and all this stuff if we just go to like the source and understand that. And that's what I like to rely on and teach. And that's it. And then all the other stuff is fluff as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's all this superficial coding of marketing and political inclinations and all sorts of social commentary that's not science, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you have to just discern what that is. Yeah. So yeah. tricky. It is. It is extremely, extremely tricky field. I am uh, currently going through Lindo Bacon's uh, Health at Every Size. Um, and yeah, some of the stuff in there is just so eye-opening. About right. like, oh no, I never did think to question that. And I think when you're in college too, you you don't really have reason to question. You know, you're there to learn. And so you believe that the person who is at the front of that hall is giving you the most accurate information. And uh, so for me, I know like once I started really digging into um, intuitive eating and looking at BMI and things of that nature, I felt shammed. <laughs> Um, so I'm curious, like, what was your thought process and your feeling around, like, everything that I've been taught is kind of bullshit? Well, you know, the thing is, I don't, I don't blame any individual people. In fact, I don't even blame myself for thinking this way or other yeah. doctors or dietitians or whatever. It's, you know, we have so much going against us because the, the education is not, I mean, here's the problem is that we are all trying to cram so much into this little window of opportunity, whether you're in medical school or nutrition school or whatever, nursing school. And like you said, we don't even have time to stop and be cynical. It would be, it would really be impossible to just have to do your own research on every single thing that's being told. You just could never get through it. So, you know, and the people that are teaching it, they are not, um, misintentioned. I don't think it's devious or something. I think that they did their schooling 20, 30, 40 years ago and, and learned something and just held on to it. And they learned it from somebody who learned it from that. Like we just don't give ourselves this space to evolve. And a lot of that has to do with our, the environment, the practice environment that we're in. And, you know, it's just, it's super challenging. Even if you start to you know, come to these ideas, let's say you're a doctor like me and you start, you know, you read Lindo Bacon's book and you start thinking about the, you know, you're like, I think I want to kind of adopt this into my, my clinical practice. Well, you like have your hands tied behind your back because I mean, with 10, maybe minutes, a patient, if you're lucky, I mean, you and I have already talked longer than 10 minutes right here on this podcast. So it's like, we're talking like this, you can't even scratch the surface of the issues even if you have the intention to do so in the amount of time that our system sets up for a provider patient interaction. And it just still seems so fringe to the general public, yes. you know? And so kind of everything's working against us for the moment. Now I will say not to be so Debbie Downer about it, but there's like the fact that this is a conversation like we're having this conversation that people are going to listen to this conversation that there are these you know advocates that are publishing books and having conferences and putting stuff on social media and writing articles and like that wouldn't even have been a thing like that was even noticeable 10 or 20 years ago so the fact that there is a conversation is hope that you know every every social change starts with a few people having a conversation about why this isn't good and then it spreads, but it's, we're, we're doing the work now. Like this is the, this is the hardest part. You know, this is kind of the uphill battle and people like you and I that are really committed to doing this work is gonna, it's gonna take time. It's definitely gonna take time, but it's this, there's so many parts of the system that have to come along with it too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it seems like, you know, when we look at a lot of problems, it's it's all systemic. It's, you know, how how we do things. And so I'm I'm curious, how how do we start to like see that change in doctors offices, in physicians offices? What like what is being done to kind of change that conversation and change that narrative? Well, 
by and large, not a lot is being done on a big scale. But here's like, here's what I think. This is pretty um, forward thinking. Let's just put it that way. I, I think we stop weighing patients. I mean, yeah. straight up stop weighing patients. There are a handful of exceptions to that um, in adults that need weights for, and I'm talking like the outliers. Okay. They're on dialysis. They're getting chemotherapy The I'm not so ignorant to think that those people don't need, but those are the exceptions to the rule. Okay. Where the problem starts when every human that enters a doctor's office for a sinus infection or a rash or anxiety or a headache or blah, 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 whatever gets weighed. That becomes the focal point of everything that happens in that interaction that's the pro that's to me that's where the problem starts mm -hmm. and so what i would like i mean the first step is to not make things worse i mean really the first thing is to have the encounters in a physician's office not make anything worse and then let's do better but the not worse has to come before the better mm -hmm. and i think that it's um, you know, it, the problem is it, it disservices individual people and it disservices everybody because what happens when people go in and have a miserable experience because of the weight shaming and the stigmatization or other things, and, and you know, I say that cause it's an extremely adverse environment for people in large bodies. But when we weigh somebody and their weight is quote normal and we pat them on the back and congratulate them and they might have a addiction problem or bulimia or food insecurity or cancer or grief or whatever problem we don't even ask we're not really exactly doing them a favor either so we're missing everybody mm -hmm. and so it's just a major distraction and then what happens you know for those individual people obviously they're not getting what they need out of that visit but then people don't come back like who voluntarily wants to go and feel terrible about themselves and so then people don't go back. They delay their appointments. They don't get preventative care. They don't get tests that they need. They don't. And then they show up later with some, you know, highly preventable thing had they have been getting regular care. But because we have shamed them like out of the system, it's, it's just terrible for sort of, that's the public health part of me speaking, you know, and then we make it worse yet. Cause then what we do is then we publish a study and say, look at all the fat people. They have breast cancer or whatever, pick your disease. And then we publish a paper and then we use that to beat all the other patients over the head with and say, you shouldn't be fat because you're going to get breast cancer. Look at all these other people. And they don't take into account that, oh, they didn't get regular mammograms. They didn't go to their doctor. They didn't, you know, they had this chronic stress response of weight stigmatization, all these things that we caused, you know? And so it's really, it really truly comes down to the do no harm thing. Honestly, I, I just think to me, the scale has got to stop. And so I encourage patients all the time to decline being weighed. I mean, unless you have one of these very specific health conditions that it is truly of clinical importance to know your exact weight today, um, by and large, you just don't need to. But I, I hate having to put that on the patients. I, I feel like it shouldn't be their responsibility but for the moment, it kind of is because we, until we create the change that we want to see, um, it's our best kind of defense, I think. And maybe if doctors hear that over and over and over and over, and it's not just the random patient, it's like most of the patients, they'll start having conversations of their own about, um, you know, is this what we want to be doing? So that's my answer to that. That is, I mean, that's pretty... Um, for, you know, pretty, pretty progressive to be like, just take the scales out I mean, mm -hmm. straight. Like, don't just don't even don't. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that idea though. Um, because yeah, you're right. We are, there are so many misdiagnoses just across the board. And I, especially I feel like for women who are in large, larger bodies, it's like women get dismissed all the time anyways, because it's like, oh, you just have womanly pain. Sometimes it, like, you're just going to have pain during sex or whatever. And so then we are misdiagnosed in that sense. But then if you walk in in a bigger body, it's like, oh, well, I have strep throat. No, you're just fat. And it's like, no, well, that's the thing is we, we have a culture where every, you know, if you have any problem and you are fat, that those two things are related. Yeah. And, and then the answer is lose weight. Right. And it's just not accurate. It's, it's just not accurate. And yeah. it's not helping anybody. 
<laughs> it's just really not. Yeah. So I think and that's one, one of the things that has to, it, it's such a distraction. I use the word distraction all the time. It is just a, such a distraction from the conversation about health and health promoting activity that we should be having. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and like you mentioned, you know, even people who are in smaller bodies, they're then celebrated for, you know, being at a normal weight or for losing weight. And we don't know anything about what's going on with them. Yeah. They are suffering from something. Right. Well, and that's interesting because that was that piece I learned more recently because the, you know, sort of fat stigma and anti-weight bias is, I think, more obvious and and probably largely more damaging. But, um, But I have heard from many women who are in slender bodies, who have been in front of doctors, right straight in front of them with eating disorders, with all sorts of psychiatric conditions and never even got asked. And they were basically given a hall pass and in in most cases actually congratulated, like you said, sort of like praised because of how, quote, good they are and how great their body is. And they were at some of the most unhealthy points in their lives. Um, and so what's the, mo- I mean, how uncomfortable is that too, you know, in a very different way, not in a stigmatized way, but in a like, gosh, I better keep this up. I mean, like I'm a, like, let's just say you're a bulimic or something and you are not in the right headspace and you get into the doctor's office and they say, oh, you look so great. Uh, and there's no reason a doctor should say you look great to any patient, you know? Right. And then all you hear is keep doing what you're doing. In fact, if you can like double down your efforts, maybe that's even better. You know, that's all you hear when you're in a, a, a mental state like that. And boy, that's not helpful. Yeah, <laughs> There's not so much, all. so much wrong with that. Yeah. And, and it's like I said, it's not th- these doctors and dietitians and stuff. I really don't believe most of them are bad people. I don't believe if they knew the impact this had that they would practice like this. Mm-hmm. I think it is mostly a I don't even know that there's another way to do this because I was never taught that I was never trained that any of my role model mentor type people, nobody ever um, did anything any other way. Mm -hmm. And we're also just people. So you have to remember too, that any provider you see for any reason does carry some level of their own personal bias and their own personal kind of anecdotal life experience they're just humans. So now we do our very best to be objective and not bring that into the care of patients. But, but when we are built on diet culture, you know, and these people are 30, 40, 50, 60 years old and have, have diet, diet identity sort of, you know, seared into their identity. It's extremely challenging to the, the lines are really blurred in terms of what is your personal opinion and what is the professional opinion um and so it's tricky i mean it just is yeah and uh i know when you talked about you know patients can refuse to be weighed if it's not for a specific reason um how can we kind of get more comfortable with that with advocating for ourselves because i know um doctors are very well respected in our society and and for good reason So how, and a lot of times, you know, a doctor says, oh, do this, do that. And you follow it blindly because they're the doctor, they know. So how do we, how do we advocate for ourselves and have the courage to say, no, I'm not going to do this. Right. Well, and it's, that's an interesting question because in my experience, and I've been practicing, like I said, for 19 years, um, patients don't hesitate to decline other things like we we operate in an informed consent model so basically you have to essentially consent to anything that I want to do to you if I'm going to draw blood or give you a medication or do an x-ray or admit you to the hospital or what I mean like and and people decline that kind of stuff all the time but so few people think that getting on the scale is like kind of included in that consent it's like that's just like a compulsory thing um but with, like I said, with a few exceptions, it's basically not. And so the way to do that is, first of all, to know that there's people all over the place that are doing this. Like, you're not the first one to say that. I promise you won't be the first one that the doctor or whoever. And let's be honest, the doctor is not the one weighing the patient anyways. The MA or the whoever, you know, drags you from the waiting room to the back and the scale's usually like on the way. So 
you don't even really probably have to have this conversation with a doctor if the kind of inferiority, you know, positioning is part of the deal. But um, one way you can say it is, I mean, you can be simple. I mean, you can be truly just be simple and be like, I prefer not to be weighed today. I'm here for a sinus infection and I don't think that that's going to be relevant for my care. So I'm going to pass or whatever. Um, another good way to do it is to say, uh, I'm not going to be, if, if they're weighing you on the way, like to the exam room, which is sort of typical is, um, I'm going to go ahead and decline getting weighed until I speak to my doctor and I can understand that it's going to directly impact my care today and sort of defer it. And then what that will happen once you get into the visit and you're having a visit about a sinus infection, like it won't even probably come up and you'll be all the way in your car leaving by the time they even figure out that you never got weighed. So you can kind of, if you want to be a little more, uh, you know, surreptitious, you can kind of like punt it a little bit. Um, you can put it on them and say, you know, if you want an explanation and say why I'm not sure how this would impact my care today, mm -hmm. since I'm here for a sinus infection, um, you can say, no, I do not consent to that. I mean, you can make it as simple as that. I do. I do not consent to that. And if they say, well, I have to put it in your chart, say, then put declined mm -hmm. because guess what? They're supposed to do lots of other things that you are refusing and they just put declined when you say you don't want your blood drawn or you don't want to get a, a radiology study that they recommend, or you don't, you're not going to come to get your colonoscopy or whatever. They just write declined all over the place. So they can write decline there. And if they give you some line about how they won't get paid, first of all, number one, that's not true. I've heard people say that. Really? Uh, yes. Oh yeah. They say like, well, we can't bill your insurance company without a wait. Well, no, that's not true. First of all, that's not true. And second of all, that's not your problem as the patient. All right. So don't even fall for that for a minute. Um, but you can be as, you know, and some people are very much, um, they have a relationship with their doctor and they do want to even perhaps engage in a conversation. And there's some good resources. Um, I'm trying to, I won't be able to think of it off the top of my head, but um, Reagan Chastain has a website that has a bunch of health at every size, like handout type things, like very brief bullet pointed sort of things like that you could bring physically print out and bring to a doctor's office and say, this is how I want my healthcare to look. These are the things that I will not agree to or agree to. And like a real, almost sort of scripted thing. It's very, I'll have to give you the link so you can put it in the, in the notes later, but it's, um, yeah, there, there's lots of resources to help you. Cause I do appreciate that it's easier said than done. I mean, I know that for most people saying no to something in a doctor's office is like a kind of uncomfortable feeling, but I think 99 out of a hundred times it will go smoother than you think. And you'll say, I don't want to be weighed in the MA who could care less. Okay. Those people are making $10 an hour to drag patients out of the waiting room. They could care less. And they say, okay. And then it's over. Like it, it just really won't even be a fight. You know, you're kind of expecting this like fight and they're like, don't even care. <laughs> yeah, they're like, I just want to get to the next patient. Like I exactly. don't even want to be exactly. in here Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it's, I mean, you have the opportunity to kind of stop it or um, explain it or engage in a conversation or, you know, avoid it altogether. But the, the easiest one I think is just to say like, I'm going to decline being weighed for right now. I, I'd like to talk to my doctor about how this affects my care today. Yeah. And then, and then the MA will say fine. And then the doctor will never hear that. And they will never have, you know, that's mm -hmm. the easy, to me, that's the easiest one. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really helpful though. Um, yeah. Cause yeah, that's something that I'm going to start using. Um, I remember the last time I was in the doctor's office, they didn't weigh me. I think the MA forgot. And so she asked me what my weight was and I was like, then why are we even doing this? Why are we yeah. having this conversation? <laughs> yeah. See, that's so silly too. Um, and you can just say that you say like, oh, use the last weight. You could ask another thing and be like, oh, well, I'm sure if you've been in the office before and you're mm -hmm. not a new patient, you can just say, I'm not being weighed today. Just use the last weight or whatever. Yeah. And, and they will, first of all, adults, medications for adults are not based on weight. So don't let them fall that, like tell you that story either. Cause that's not true in children. They are, but in adults, if you need an antibiotic for a sinus infection or whatever, it is the same, whether you weigh 110 pounds or 410 pounds. So don't let that be part of the conversation. There's so much like urban legend. Is that the right word? Like the sort of false information out there that's, 
I don't know where it came from, but it becomes like sort of the, the belief system. And it's just, it's just not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there are a lot of big conversations that need to happen. Um, one thing that I'm curious about, um, and I, I'm assuming that you're going to know much more about this than I do, um, which is why I have you on. But, um, <laughs> so I've, I've heard that, uh, for for a long time, people in larger bodies were not included in clinical studies. Um, have we, I, I, I would assume that's true when we look at, you know, people of color used to not be involved in a lot of clinical studies as well. Have we come further with including more diverse bodies in those clinical studies now? Um, yes. So, so people in all sizes of bodies are included in clinical studies. The problem is um, people in large bodies have a, a entirely unmeasurable impact of this anti-fat bias and this cultural stigma that you can't really factor into a statistical analysis. So it what happens is they'll do these studies and the result of these studies, and I'm sure you've talked about it before, about the difference between an association and causation. That's like mm -hmm. learning how to read research number 101. You know, the problem is even when you control for all these other things and you control for income and you control for, you know, whatever, age and all these things, you can't control for fat bias. Like there's not a, a way to sort of clean that out of the literature. So when you're comparing health outcomes for people in lean bodies and people in big bodies with everything else controlled for, there's still a variable. And that gets uh, ignored and because it's not like real tangible, you know, it's not like something extremely objective that you can give like a number to or something. And that sometimes leads for these uh, correlative conclusions to be drawn that state stuff like people in larger bodies have a higher likelihood of developing diabetes. And that may be true that there is a correlation to people in large bodies developing diabetes. That doesn't take into the consideration the daily chronic stress that they face from navigating our society in a large body, which changes your cortisol response, which changes your insulin sensitivity, all the things that are like physiologic. It doesn't change the fact that they may not have equitable access to healthcare, that they were treated differently in a doctor's office. It doesn't like, you can't sort of take that out of it. All right. Um, so then what happens is the conclusion, which was only associative to start with, becomes the headline that fat causes diabetes. Okay, that's where that leap happens. And so, you know, the one out of 10,000 Americans that actually reads scientific, I'm probably being very generous in saying that. I'm sure it's way less than that. Um, <laughs> you know, the other 9,999 people um, see the headline. Mm -hmm. and, and believe me, I don't expect every... American to be trained in reading articles on PubMed and know how to do a statistical analysis. And that's not, that's not necessary, but that's why there's people like me and you who can do that. Um, and you have to like, listen to us when we're telling you that that is not what the, that is not what the study says. It does not say being fat causes you to have diabetes. That's not what it says. That's not what it even said in the study. And the study was even shady to start with, but even that isn't what it said. So, um, so to answer your question, yes, people of all size bodies are being included in, you know, the clinical sort of literature body or the collection of data, but how does that influence the conclusions? That's, it's messy. I mean, it's messy because it's not something, you know, I mean, when you're trying to control for you know, age, like I said, that's like a number. You can actually pick a number, pick a range, pick an error margin, pick, you know, and be very kind of clean about it. Um, social stigma is not measurable on a calculator. Mm -hmm. um, and so that stuff affects 
the headlines and then everybody takes the headlines and runs with it. And then of course, diet culture, the, the marketing piece of it. Well, that's like a, that is dollar signs like flashing in front of their face because you know, if the headline is fat people will get diabetes, the answer is let's figure out how to make people not fat. Let's make all the fat people scared. So they'll buy our product plan app book shake, whatever it is, you know, and like, because they're not in it for, clinical outcomes they're in it to sell sell something so it's just muddy it's really it's really muddy you know and that's part of the understanding that I try to help people is like understand what everybody's role is you know when you see a piece of information that is you know reportedly objective like that's only as objective as the person giving you the information you know, if it's coming from a company that has a secondary gain to be had, or it's coming from the government, or it's coming from, uh, you know, there's, there's, you have to just, and I'm not saying it's all false. I'm saying you have to be critical of what is the evidence behind the, and, and I'm not saying all doctors have it right either, but it's just, you have to be a little bit um, skeptical. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a luxury to be skeptical and to be able to do the research and to oh, advocate absolutely. for yourself. Because, you know, I I used to work in a WIC clinic. And, oh, yeah. You know, I, I feel horribly about how so many of those people are treated because they come in and they are, you know, they have a high BMI, they have high blood pressure, they... All they can think about is that they need to get back to their shift in five minutes. Right. Or their electricity will be turned off next week and their yes. four kids will not have a babysitter anymore. And they, yeah, they are not worried about how much choline is in a chia seed or whatever. Like it's just so out of reach, this sort of nutrition lifestyle. And see that that's exactly a good point because everybody can learn something. Okay. Even if you are in that situation and you are low income and you're working three jobs and you're overweight and you're getting your food from a food pantry or whatever, like you can still learn something about health that's objective. And you should be allowed to, if you wish to learn that. And it's, shouldn't be such a exclusionary thing, you know, that you don't have to drink $10 green juice every morning in order to be healthy, like, and it, you know, it, it is, it feels very, um, sort of privileged. And I don't think that's right because everybody has the same human body that's working really the same way underneath the hood. And so uh, anybody should be able to get the level of information and the level of health care that they are interested in getting. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. but you're exactly right. Yeah, that's if you've seen that firsthand, that is a changing point for a lot of people. I mean, that is really when they kind of wake up and realize like, oh, this is how the world actually works. You know, <laughs> this exactly. is how this is how and there was more people like that than not like that is the yeah. truth of it. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that for most people, it's it's not a weight issue. It's a it's a mental health issue. And, you know, especially in America, we see rising rising rates of depression and anxiety and people are at an all-time high for stress and it's like well let's look at how how we're eating when we're stressed when i'm stressed i'm not thinking about grabbing a salad like i'm thinking about grabbing pizza and that's okay like pizza is okay (laughs) right well and let's not shame the people and add more stress by making them stressed about what they can or cannot even access Mm -hmm. you know it's just at pouring gasoline on a fire, honestly, because um, yeah. you shaming them about eating fast food is probably worse than whatever is in the fast food that they're eating at, you know, in some cases, it's just, we have to be a little more open-minded. It really comes from just being open-minded. Honestly, it's not. And I, you know, and I say this, I am a white person. I am in a, you know, upper middle income bracket. I do not get my food from a food pantry. I have a lot of, a lot of privileges that people I, you know, treat and take care of do not have. I I see that, but that doesn't mean you can't be open-minded to there's, there's just sort of, um, I don't know. There's this, there's this thing about nutrition that 
there's one right way and it's the only way and everybody has to do it in this way or they're wrong or excluded or left in the dust, you know, and that, I don't think that's true. I really don't think that's true. And I don't even think that's scientifically true. <laughs> so, um, I really like to let Thank people you. know that, that there are opportunities for them to improve their health if they want to do it. Cause that's another thing is it's not a obligation, you know, to do these things, but most people are interested in improving their health and not dying prematurely and stuff. So it's accessible. Like there are things that are accessible and um, I feel bad when people are in a position where they feel like it's not possible, you know, cause there's always something, there's always something. Yeah. Well, and I feel like too, the media, I mean, they always want the sexy headline. So we have superfoods and I've even seen um, recently you know, calories in, calories out was uh, abbreviated to C-I-C-O. Oh, dear Lord. Are we still talking about that? Yeah, I know. It's like awful, right? Yes. And it's it's so disheartening because, yeah, it makes health seem so out of reach for so many people. Um, and it really shouldn't be. No, it's, you know, the, the thing about the headlines, though, is that the those are headlines. Like, that's the point of it. It's, they're supposed to be... Uh, sexy and and cutting and controversial and and flashy because that's media that's they depend on readers and viewers and stuff so that's still not science like it's not very interesting to talk about like the neuroendocrine axis on the cover of you know cosmopolitan magazine that's like mm -hmm. not that wouldn't like increase their readership you know what i'm yeah. saying so it, you have to understand that that stuff is not nutrition science. It is a headline and we get those mixed up because it's what we see. And when it's all you see, it is easy to be kind of deluded that that is fact, but those are all biased uh, sources because, yeah. you know, the liver functions the way the liver functions it. My liver functions just like, Khloe Kardashian's liver, just like your liver, just like President Biden's liver. It all, it's just the liver, okay? So it's not very sexy <laughs> to talk about that kind of stuff. You know, that's, but um, there are resources. And that's really what I want to emphasize is that there are resources to learn, at least learn how to discern what is uh, truth and what is not truth or objective and subjective, you know, just even, I'm not suggesting everybody is, needs to become a doctor or a dietitian, but like just to have a discerning eye so that you don't take on the feelings that are associated with all that bias, you know, that's not necessary. It's going to be out there until we can shake this tree, which is going to take us a minute. So you know, but it's, um, I love health. I love healthcare. I love nutrition. I love science. And I want other people to feel like it's open for them to access. Yeah. Well, and I think that's why it's so important to have accounts like yours and voices like yours who are saying like, hey, you don't have to be thin to be healthy. You don't have to eat, you know, only only no carbs and and no fat and just eat air and that'll that'll make yeah. you healthy it's like that's not how it works and there's room in everybody's diet for pizza and taco bell and and salads and you know the things that you enjoy and it doesn't yeah. have to be so stressful and it is really attainable right well and the the biggest biggest singular misnomer is that weight and health are the same thing and they are just simply not synonyms. They're not. Right. And we substitute one of one word for the other word all the time. We do yeah. that in just conversation. We do that. They do that in the food industry. They do that in the doctor's office. They do that in the fitness industry. They're just not the same words. And so we need to start using those words in the right context. And if you want to talk about health, then let's talk about health. If you want to talk about weight, let's talk about weight. But we can't substitute one for the other because it just doesn't they're not interchangeable yeah. and that's the main main thing i mean if i could change one thing that is like 
having people understand that first, to me, that's the cornerstone of understanding everything else that's in, you know, the books you're reading and, and that sort of stuff. It's just, um, that is the center point mm-hmm. of this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, I want to give you a chance to promote yourself. So please let us know where can we follow you? Well, thank you for inviting me. This has been a great conversation. I'm easy to find because I'm Maggie Landis, MD. And that is my handle on Instagram, Facebook. Um, that's my website, MaggieLandisMD.com. And I'm also a podcaster too. I have a podcast called the Eat Fluencer Podcast. And you can find that anywhere that you listen to your podcast. So yeah, I do some personal, uh, some group coaching services, but there are a lot of free resources on my website um, just to help people get started in the right direction. So thank you for letting me share that. Of course, of course. Yes. Thank you again. I cannot thank you enough. I This has been such an enlightening conversation and I can't wait for everybody to hear it. Yes. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Empowered Authenticity, the podcast. Please make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like more content from Empowered Authenticity, make sure to follow on Instagram at empowered underscore authenticity. We'll see you next week. Do you feel stuck and unmotivated? Want to create your dream life but don't know where to begin? If you're interested in improving your relationships, communication skills, or feeling more comfortable in your skin, I can help. Together we can determine what's holding you back from living your best life and help to quiet that negative Nancy residing in your head. If you've been interested in working with a coach who is optimistic and authentic and empowers you to be as well, then schedule your free 30-minute chemistry session today by going to empoweredauthenticity.net. Again, that's empoweredauthenticity.net.